Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. My name is Tom, you may know me as the creator of Like Stories of Old, and I'm joined by my fellow video essayist Thomas Flight to talk about Lee Chang Dong's Burning. Before we begin, Cinema of Meaning is a Nebula original podcast, meaning that on Nebula you can listen to all of our episodes ad-free and a week early, and you'll also get access to monthly bonus episodes. This exclusive catalog consists of movies such as Fight Club, Babylon, All Quiet on the Western Front, and many more. Be sure to use our personal link in the show notes to get a $20 discount on a yearly subscription. I also want to quickly shout out our Discord server, where we discuss movies with our listeners and take the occasional suggestion. If you want to join our little community, the link for that is also in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Thomas. Burning is one of the movies that I think your audience has heard you talk about a lot already yes. in various videos. <laughs> I've never made a video specifically about it, but it keeps coming mm -hmm. up in in other in various videos. How so? How does this movie keep coming up again and again for you? I maybe first mentioned it in my video about subtle performance, highlighting a few mm. moments, Stephen Yoon's performance in here, which I think is incredible every time i watch this movie i notice more in his performance that wasn't like that i didn't really see before i think he's a fantastic actor to begin with but the minute details in this performance and how chilling it is to me with how little he's doing is is really incredible so i highlighted that in a video and then i think i also talked about its cinematography recently as well which is kind of similar and i'll probably mention this multiple times but Really, to me, one of the things I love so much about this movie is sort of the, the subtlety with which it's doing. They're, the cinematography is the kind of thing where you could watch this once and not notice anything that particularly special about it. Um, there's some longer takes mm -hmm. or like a few shots that are composed in a really interesting way that, that might stand out to you. But mostly it's just it's just kind of there and you're like, OK, you know, it's it's good. It's serviceable. It's not in your face about it. Yeah, it's yeah. not in your face. But this is one of those movies in the performances, in the cinematography, in how it's written that just kind of has more to discover or there's a lot to discover there as I've rewatched it. And every time I've rewatched it, mm -hmm. I've kind of seen more of what it's doing, which I, for someone like me is a, is fun to find because... Part of what we do is is kind of take a movie and watch it a bunch of times or like break it apart into pieces. And so I love a movie that mm -hmm. has a lot there to discover once you start doing that. But I think there's there's maybe an interesting discussion to be had about if there's downsides to that, because I think this is also a movie that is really difficult to get like the most out of on a first watch. Like I think you really yeah, have yeah. to go in a second time at least to even in terms of plot and experience to kind of get the full experience here or experience everything that this this movie has to offer so i think there's upsides and downsides to that but i've had a lot of fun revisiting it and kind of finding more here uh and you know talking about those little details i've never put all those things into a video so far so it'll be fun to kind of talk about it holistically here and i might do a video eventually we'll see but this is this mm -hmm. is one that i i like as a story but also as a movie to examine and dissect from a filmmaking perspective, because I think there's a lot 
uh, it rewards doing yep. that. I guess th- if you rewatched it for this, th- this would have been your second time. You saw it a while ago. Yeah. I I think I saw it in the year that it came out, the first time at least. Uh, and then I rewatched it again for the second time last night. But yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Uh, for one, I think the second viewing was much more rewarding. And even though I enjoyed it the first time, I was surprised at how much I had actually forgotten about yeah, it. Yeah. I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's just there's a lot of stuff that went over my head. I, I, I remembered all the big moments, like the big twists but i forgot a lot of the subtleties of it right and i think a lot of the essence of this movie is hidden in those subtleties so in a way the second viewing was a was more refreshing than usual even because i had lost out on so many details the first time around and even now the second time i was still for someone who analyzes movies for a living i I still (laughs) felt kind of like it went over my head and I only later I was like, oh, wait, so that what's going on? I, yeah. I completely forgot about the whole potential murder aspect right, to it all. Right. Like I because I was I remembered at the I was watching the movie, I think like 20, 30 minutes. And I was thinking like I remember reading the IMDb description where it says like we have this young guy, Jung Su, I think his name was, who meets this girl and she goes on a trip. Uh, he falls in love with her, but she... At first, it seems like she is attracted to him, but she also wants him to watch over her cat while she's away. She goes on this trip to Africa, and then she comes back with this enigmatic young guy, or slightly older than Young Su is, but still relatively young and very wealthy guy, played by uh, Stephen Yun. The IMDb description says that, and then that at some point Stephen Young shares his character's name Ben, Ben shares with him a mysterious like hobby or unusual hobby that he has. I remembered that before I went into the movie. And then like 20, 30 minutes in, I was thinking to myself, like, I didn't remember what the hobby was. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what was this about again? And then it it took even longer to realize like, oh, wait, this is actually a metaphor. It's not a literal hobby. Like probably not at least. That's kind of one of the central questions is... This is based on a short story, or there's two short stories. There's one by William Faulkner, who, and Faulkner's writing is referenced directly in the movie called Barn Burning. I actually mm, haven't read yeah. this short story, but there's also a Haruki Murakami, I think is how you say his name. The author yeah. wrote a short story called, uh, also called Barn Burning. That's kind of what this is most directly based on. And that short story, it's only 14 pages. All that's in that story essentially is like the basic setup, which is different, like, Jung Su is like an older married guy and he's hanging out with this young woman and then this other character starts hanging around and they have the conversation about Mm. the barn burning and then the girl disappears and then the story ends there's Mm. no it doesn't elaborate really beyond that so it's just left in the mind of the the character the Jung Su character in the short story he runs around and he looks for the barns but he never finds one that's burned down and then so he's just kind of like oh, that's weird, and the story ends there. So it's it's just left amb- completely ambiguous. Oh, it doesn't okay. even yeah. doesn't even connect them to the extent that this, this hmm. movie does. And the movie adds a lot more layers of kind of like unfolding that mystery and digging into whether or not Ben actually has a hobby of serially murdering young women that he's talking about in this metaphor of burning these greenhouses. 
it digs into that mystery a little bit more, but it still leaves it relatively ambiguous. And I think that ambiguity, how ambiguous that is, is I think apparent in the fact that you forgot about that whole plot, like <laughs> after <laughs> watching it one time, because it doesn't, it never, <laughs> like it never explicitly comes out and says any of that. Like Zhang Su never yeah, talks yeah. to anyone about the fact that he seems to think that Ben like killed Haimi. Uh It's like mm -hmm. he says almost nothing. So you're left as the viewer to kind of put the pieces together in the same way that he is. And you never get anything beyond just like circumstantial evidence. So there's there's a lot of mm -hmm. of ambiguity in that. But we can get to that more later. Maybe we should start more at the beginning. Yeah. Because a, another thing about this movie is that it is that that makes it, I think, weird to watch in this dynamic of the second watch being more fulfilling maybe than the first is it is truly like a slow burn pun maybe intended in that like it's it's like 20 minutes before we even go to Jung Soo's house like Stephen Yeun, the Ben character shows up like 40 minutes into the movie the real yeah, yeah. mystery portion of the movie where Jung Soo is like following Ben around and kind of like trying to figure out what happened is only like the last like hour at most yeah it's a two and a half hour yeah movie. so there's yeah. a whole like hour and a half of movie at the beginning that's just kind of like this lonely young man who doesn't have a whole lot going on meeting up with this you know he happens to meet up with Haimi who he knew from childhood and they're just kind of hanging out and she's telling him weird stories and doing pantomime stuff and they have sex and uh, Jung Soo shovels cow poop. It's like there's not much going on. It's just <laughs> yeah. it's just like establishing this setting and these characters for basically an hour before really anything starts happening. And so the first mm -hmm. time you watch that, yeah, I think like you pick up on the mood, you pick up on some of these things, and once the three of them start hanging out together, even Steven Yeun, you're like, oh, he maybe he's a little weird or haughty or you know he's being classist a little bit but there's a little bit arrogant but there's not a lot of there's not a lot of like weight and meaning in those moments necessarily or there's not as much as there is on a second watch where you know the context of kind of what what happened or what happens at the end of the movie suddenly mm -hmm. you're like reading into all these little details and you're trying to figure out like okay you know is he a murderer or is he just like a, you know, a haughty rich kid? There's a lot of different things mm -hmm. that the characters say. Like one of the, one example is, uh, Hey me, I think it's pretty early on. She mentioned something about like wanting to disappear, just wanting to like, you know, I think it's after she comes back yeah. from the trip. She's like, I, I, I wish I could just disappear as if I never existed. And the first time you hear that, you're like, Oh, that's kind of like a, just a sad sentiment for the character to say but then mm -hmm. when the second time you watch that it suddenly takes on more significance is that like does that point to her just disappearing on her own and ben having nothing to do with it we don't know yeah might might also be like if you do go with the interpretation that ben is a serial killer that might have been a sign of her displaying herself as prey to him because he right. specifically searches out these quote-unquote abandoned greenhouses that are no longer 
being used. And so uh, he does men- Ben does mention to uh, Jong Su at some point that she is someone who isn't in contact with her family, doesn't have many friends, doesn't have much going on. So she is in this metaphor, the abandoned greenhouse that no one will truly miss if yeah. it's burned down without a trace, yeah. except for Jong Su, I guess. And that, I guess, is also the uh, the main tension there towards the end. But yeah, I think it's also very much, especially in that first half, a story of loneliness and disconnection. Maybe, you know, they talk about the search for meaning as the little hunger versus the great hunger. Right. Uh, with the little hunger, I think, being the more basic essentials for survival. And then the great hunger, the really important one, is more the quest for meaning, which is, I think, what drove Hamie to Africa in the first place. She yeah. was hoping to find or to fulfill that great hunger there, even though uh, she comes back with mixed success, I guess. And also, yeah, you mentioned um, Murakami. Uh, Murakami, yeah. Yeah, I I haven't read the short story that this movie is based on, but I am familiar with some of his other works, and I definitely recognized some of those storytelling elements here. That's always, uh, especially with like Kafka on the short as a kind of a Freudian angle to it yes. all, and you can, can sort of see it here, the... There's a sexual tension and also sex is clearly a part of the thing that drives desires and is also used or wielded as power right. in, in in like these little insignificant ways almost. Yeah. Um, especially in early on, you know, you get the sense that when Hamie first meets Jung Su, she, he doesn't remember her, but she remembers him. But she remembers him mostly in a negative way for because he apparently told her at once that she was ugly and now she says like i'm i got plastic surgery i'm pretty now so when she sleeps with him there's a it it doesn't feel like a pure i'm attracted to you and i want this it feels like there's other motives or other sentiments being coming into that area and then again when it at after that she's like okay i'm going to africa now i need someone to watch over my cat you know and she doesn't appear to have anyone else. So to what extent was she playing yeah. his strings or yes. trying to pull his strings and trying to manufacture a situation with for which she used sex as a sort of power tool, yeah. I guess. I'm yeah. not sure what the best way to describe that is. Right. But, but it, it, we definitely don't get the feeling that... I definitely don't get the feeling watching it that she's just like attracted to Jung Su and is interested in having a relationship with him. There seems to be like you you put it perfectly when you said it, there, there it doesn't feel like there's kind of a their relationship doesn't feel like it has a basis in this kind of in love, I guess would be the easiest way of saying it. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, it just feels very like he desires Jung Su desires a lot of things. Sex is just one of them and like it doesn't feel like he even wants Hamie specifically it's she just mm-hmm. he sees her as like kind of an object to that he can get that by I think although he does like confess his love yeah. later but only to Ben I think he thinks he loves yes. her but he is also he, he he does kind of capture that misogynist nice guy who will idolize a woman and put her on a pedestal yeah. but then the moment she you know, after that, when she does that topless dance, she's like, or he's like, oh, why do you take your clothes off so easily? Yeah. Like, he, that's, then he pushes her down, and yeah. he, I think he even calls her a whore or something like yeah. that. 
which is that typical kind of you idolize or you come across as the perfect nice guy who ide idealizes women but then when they want to express themselves or especially their sexuality they become they, they suddenly become more possessive or restrictive as if this the sexuality of a woman is a thing for them to possess and not something for them for the women themselves to express right but i think right. the irony here is that after uh Hamie comes back with ben it's kind of suggested that they are together now it's not never explicit and they, they don't say it out loud but you know there's that moment early when they they get back from the airport and then jung Su does have a chance to bring Hamie home but then he's immediately like or i think ben offers like should i take you home and jung Su instead of like resisting or at least maybe demonstrating indirectly like i kind of want to spend some time with her like he immediately instead of that he immediately picks the bag or her bag out of his truck puts it in ben's car and pretty much surrenders her immediately and then later there's that moment where he insults her for taking off her clothes in in, in a public setting even though there's pretty much no one around but the irony there i think is that even though over time their relation is one that's now divorced from a sexual relation or from sexual intercourse or any romantic involvement basically it does feel like that's when Hamy, or at least that's what that's what ben says later on is that that's when Hamy does come to realize that he is actually someone she may have wanted to be with even though she felt like maybe rejected by him to some right to some yeah. to some uh, degree but I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like the, that, that there's so many complicated layers to their relation and that it really shows that attraction and love and kind of that whole area of human connection is so complicated and yeah. dynamic also. And it's just a really fascinating part of this film for me because you also, I think because you identify so much with Jung Soo, he's the point of view character. You're right. kind of guessing at Hamie's inner psychology yeah. and what's really going on inside of her and so you're you basically only have ben's testimony at some point after she's disappeared i think he tells ben that or he tells jong soon that she genuinely cared for him and so right. that ben even was jealous of him for amy feeling this way about jong Su. so i don't know i think she it is also i think plays into the the Ben is not a serial killer interpretation of the story, or maybe that Hamie has just disappeared and that she, in the sense that she, she came home from the trip with this new eccentric guy and maybe she came to realize that he's not all that either. Right. And so she realizes maybe she wants to be with Jung Soo, you know, someone nice, but then he turns out to be not that nice and he's actually pushing her away, it seems, and not letting her be who she wants to be. And so she kind of feels abandoned. Yeah. And that's when she decides to disappear. And um, that's also what yeah. makes that interpretation slightly more likely. Yes. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that, that there's definitely illusion there. And I think there's an interesting dynamic where the, the sort of love triangle that forms between them, class kind of plays a big role in that where yeah, uh, yeah. The, there's this implication that or not even implication, we find out later that Hamy has all this credit card debt. Class is a big theme throughout the film. I think a, lo a lot of the the way it's set up structurally is we spend all this time at the beginning 
kind of in Zheng Su's environment, in the places that he and Hei Mi are hanging out. There's this great moment where they walk into her apartment and the camera's just facing the door and Zheng Su is like comments on how nice of an apartment it is and then the camera just kind of slowly pans over and it's like at least to my American eyes it's like the tiniest apartment imaginable uh mm-hmm. but he's commenting on like how the the apartment he had in Seoul I guess it was was even smaller uh than hers mm. might also have been just politeness <laughs> right yes it could it could have been but there's this dynamic where I feel like what Jung Su wants is not hey me but to be Ben mm. because in his mind Ben can just get Hamey or any other girl that he wants. Uh, and yeah. he just has all these other things that uh, Zhang Su wants. So there's this like the object of Zhang Su's desire is is not necessarily Hamey, um, although maybe he thinks it does. Uh, or maybe even there's, there is a spark of something real between them, but that then gets overshadowed mm-hmm. by this desire to be Ben or have what ben has or these other things yeah i think it may also just have been this sort of internalized submission towards higher class which in this right. case is yes the, the higher financial class also equals to higher social class and higher yeah. like maybe even like higher like a higher tier of masculinity that he automatically has to bow down to because he feels like he doesn't he's not in that same league of right. men and so that's maybe why he immediately almost hands Hamey over to him without even so much of a uh, like a so much of a protest or right uh, and yeah just yeah. because the the class structure is so strong and so internalized that it also that he all automatically puts himself beneath him also on the, like that on a more personality right. level that just because he is wealthy more upper class he's also automatically a better or more deserving human being than he is yeah because yeah, yeah and besides uh, him being uh, ben being more wealthy he's also being portrayed as being more intelligent i think he at least there's a there's a bit of a condescending moment there where he doesn't want to explain what he does for a living but because he says you'll or a young suit won't understand it anyways and he's also kind of condescending towards Hey where to the point where you start questioning what does Ben even want from her right because they don't seem to have anything like intelligent really to talk about at least not from Ben's perspective and so that I guess that again plays into the 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 interpretation that he might uh, have actually just been spending time with her as a serial killer looking for his next victim yeah it's definitely portrayed Ben is an interesting character here because like I already mentioned I think the performance is amazing there's a lot of these little moments where Ben kind of does something that on paper you could kind of you could kind of describe as fairly innocent but it's the way it's played or the way it plays out in the movie feels specifically malicious like there's there's that moment where Mm -hmm. they meet up Ben kind of invites Hamey and Jung Su to come have dinner with his fr- his rich friends is kind of the the subtext and they all walk up he introduces Jung Su as a writer and then they ask what he's writing and he's like oh well I'm not published yet and then Ben kind of defends him quote unquote where he's like oh 
to to be a writer is just to write he's kind of like but the the friend's reaction to that is like laughter and you can tell they like they don't take him seriously they don't the way ben mm-hmm. is presenting that mo- moment to me feels very much like he is saying jung su is a writer to his friends with a little bit of a wink and a nod and like a he's playing with the power dynamic that he has of someone of higher mm-hmm. socioeconomic status and he, treating using that power to kind of treat them as playthings and we see that a lot where there's this yeah. at that same dinner then Hemi is kind of telling her stories from Africa and she gets up and dances and this is a moment I talked about in my subtle performances video but there's this little moment where she's dancing uh, because everybody's encouraged her to and everybody kind of loses interest and there's almost this like feeling of embarrassment that falls across the wealthier people and Jung Soo catches Ben yawning and then like Ben sees that Jung Soo sees him yawning and kind of gives him this kind of like knowing smile almost which really comes Mm -hmm. across as sick in a kind of way where he's like he just is so there's such an air of not just arrogance and haughtiness there but then also like complete I don't I don't know he sees himself as so above it that he's just like wielding hey me as this like fun little trinket that he can kind of like parade around mm-hmm. to his to his wealthy friends and that scene is weird and you're kind of like ooh, i get really bad vibes from this guy when you see that play out the second time once jung su is like suspicious that he might have murdered Haimi, like and you see the oh there's a new girl that is also telling her stories of her travels and like you know this whole sequence seems to be playing out again in a second scene and again we catch ben like yawning in the same way it's like it goes from like okay bad bad creepy arrogant vibes to just like this guy's sick i was trying to read some korean reviews of this and so i was Mm -hmm. it it was a little difficult because i was finding them in korean and then you trying to google translate them into english which is not the most accurate way of doing things but i came across one review where the person said something to the effect of whether or not he killed hey me is kind of beside the point like i mean it's it's an interesting question within the film but either way the Mm -hmm. like his character is kind of sick in a certain way or seems almost psychopathic in a certain way regardless of that he's still like leveraging his power in a way to just like play these you know treat these people as his kind of like play things um and i thought that was a great a great point that like his character you know it it, there's there's a degree of difference between he's a serial killer Mm -hmm. and he's just this guy who picks up these women and then tosses them out but like kind of objectifies them and right plays around with them and then yeah and then tosses them aside but like the greenhouse metaphor kind of stands either way like the burning of the greenhouse metaphor stands either way you know he may not be killing them but he's still just like finding these vulnerable women and then just like you know using them up and burning them yeah even if you take the burning of the greenhouses literally instead of metaphorically even there there's already that same dynamic where 
he kind of goes into the countryside for his his own strange little hobby. And then there's this whole conversation about how he decides, or with Jiang Su, how he decides which greenhouses are truly abandoned and right, right. waiting to be burned by him. And he kind of gives this almost like he is, uh, like it's a sort of law of nature, the way he decides, like this, right. they, this has to happen, like... He doesn't even feel strongly motivated or he does see, he just seems to say like like he is god and whatever happens is whatever i whatever i do is whatever happens and it's just that's the way it is that's how how it goes or something right. like that. Yeah. He doesn't he doesn't given seem to really give a a good explanation for how he picks them and and that i guess is the arrogance that he just looks upon the landscape and he sees like the things that he can take or use to for himself and uh without regard for maybe this is someone's property or this is being used by some farmer that he uh, in some way that he doesn't recognize he doesn't even seem to consider that there may have there may be other people with other perspectives on this yes. or um he just kind of assumes that whatever he wants is how it has to be or how it is yeah there's another moment where they where they go and make pasta where he talks about making food and he likes making food for himself because he makes it as an offering in the same way that people oh, yeah. made an offering <laughs> to gods he makes food for himself and then eats it <laughs> so it's like yeah. he's definitely equating himself <laughs> with god in a, yeah. in a way that's very creepy at the least this episode of cinema of meaning is brought to you by Mubi. Mubi is an online streaming cinema with hand-curated movies from all around the world. They carry Burning in the U.S., which is the movie we're talking about today. I've recommended it already a bunch of times. I, I love this movie, uh, and I love Mubi. So if you uh, <laughs> if you don't have Mubi yet, you can sign up and give Burning a watch on there uh, if you haven't seen it yet. Or if you need to watch it a second time now that we've talked about it, which I definitely recommend. Yeah, other than that, they also have Decision to Leave that's streaming worldwide. I come back to that one later in the year, towards the end of the episode, which is also a fantastic Korean mystery thriller slash romance, which is exclusively available on Mubi. So that's another great watch within their already amazing library. You can check that library out when you sign up for a, an extended 30-day free trial at movie.com slash cinema of meaning. They're adding new films all the time and everyone is handpicked with a description of why they chose that movie to include. So beyond our recommendations, movie's just a great resource for exploring cinema and kind of finding new and interesting things to watch on their streaming service. So again, sign up for your extended 30-day free trial at movie.com slash cinema of meaning. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring this podcast. I saw a different interpretation. I, I don't remember where I saw it, but it was one interpretation that argued that whatever we see in the movie up until Hamie's disappearance, that's... But everything that happens after that, that's actually Jung Soo finally having finished his novel. Right. And so that's the fiction of his own story. Because as you said, he is a writer or he's trying to be a writer, but it's not quite working out. He isn't quite able to find his story. Yeah which is also reflected in the beginning. You know, he's very stuck in his situation and he's, he has to go to his dad, dad's hearing who is on trial for violence against a 
police officer, some person i think yeah or, yeah yeah for but that it's kind of like stuck in place it's not progressing anywhere and that kind of resembles jung su's situation with yeah. where he's at with his story and so as the this interpretation goes you know he it's because of ben actually and maybe uh, hey me that he finds the motivation to give his story a direction and so you know we have the quote-unquote real story where he does meet ben who is this just this great gatsby ish character kind of strange eccentric arrogant classist uh all those things but not necessarily a serial killer and then hey me at some point just grabs her stuff and moves and disappears to start life anew and that's what Jung Su then uses as a to build as the building blocks to base his story on and he changes it into explicit murder mystery slash um thriller story yeah. in which he you know the point is that he actually there is a division there between what's real what's imagined or what's fiction uh but either way Ben came into his life and gave him some kind of inspiration or some kind of catharsis i guess some kind of way to break his rut that he was in right and either way you know whether ben actually was a serial killer or not he still was this kind of villainous character who treated them um treated Hami and maybe uh jung su to a lesser extent symbolically the same as a serial killer would treat his murder victims right. you know kind of that objectifying disconnecting from their humanity and just doing whatever he wants with them without regard for what it is that they want yeah there's a very specific moment for me that i think that break happens if if that's something that happens in the film there's a scene towards the end where jiang su seems to like fantasize that they're having sex again but then he's just laying in her apartment by himself and then he starts writing and the camera pulls back from the window and we see him writing in the window and it's the first time i'm pretty sure i've seen this movie a bunch of times now and i've taken pretty extensive notes Hmm. i'm pretty sure this is the first moment in the film where we actually break from jung su's perspective we see every scene that happens in the movie he's present in the scene or he's there in some way like we don't find out any information that he doesn't know and then we get the scene of him writing and this is after he found that ben seems to have hamie's cat he's writing and then it pulls back and then we cut to ben by himself (laughs) with this new girl and he's putting makeup on her and he seems to be kind of preparing and then while that's happening, he gets a phone call and then he goes to meet up with Jung Su. And then we get this climactic ending moment where Jung Su stabs him, burns the car. And I think there's a strong insinuation that all of that, that maybe the stuff before that actually happened, where he follows mm-hmm. he follows Ben around, he is actually suspicious, but then he like he is unable to actually do anything about any of it about his suspicions and he just writes he writes this ending where he goes and uh you know kills ben in vengeance Um, oh yeah yeah and so i think that that might be the like the break or that's the break in my mind where i think we we likely veer veer into um jung su's novel i think the interpretation i saw had it break earlier earlier, probably after the 
dance scene that also goes on and kind of turns a little bit dreamy. Right, right. Because that, I think that was the last moment we see Hey Me on screen, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. I think after that, she's disappeared. Yeah. The fact that he's a writer and that we kind of see him writing the story at the end introduces this sort of like element of him potentially being an unreliable narrator. And that could start anywhere. The whole thing could be the story. It, you know, it's hard mm. to tell. But I think like, you know, the my feeling is is that like the, there's such a sharp stylistic break in those last couple scenes that I think that's probably the the insinuation. Yeah. There's another interesting moment. The one w- so he he's been following Ben around for a while and he doesn't really have any evidence. He finds the watch in the bathroom, which could have just been like maybe she just left it there before she took off. Uh, yeah. Or gifted it to him. Gifted or it to yeah. him. Who knows? You know, uh, we see he seems to have Boyle the cat, but Boyle as a cat is a weird character anyway because. He's like yes. half imaginary. That's maybe one of the more Murakami-esque elements of the story is mm. like there's this cat that seems to simultaneously exist and not exist. But anyway, <laughs> Ben, he, yeah, yeah, he does poops. leave poop but doesn't show up. And then later he shows up <laughs> and responds to the name Boyle. Uh, but like, again, you know, Ben could have just taken him from uh, Hamey and like you know mm-hmm. be lying about it the the cat could have just responded to coincidentally to that name it's like who knows that doesn't prove anything uh and then the 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 weirdest piece besides the whole greenhouse story which you know could be just like you could you can easily read as ben kind of through metaphor admitting to this whole thing like when he goes up he f- he's following Ben around and they go up to a quarry in a more rural area. He's just like looking yeah. out over this quarry, which you could assume like would be, you know, probably an easy place to hide a body or something like that. But that whole sequence, I'm not even sure if it's not uh, a dream to some extent because he like, mm-hmm. there's this weird cut where he's like standing up on the hill and you feel like something would be about to happen. Like there's no it just has this very weird sense. And then immediately it jung it like cuts to Jung Su waking up in the next scene. Oh yeah. So I think there's a degree of ambiguity there too. in like towards the end where we're not sure like how much, you know, even if it's not his novel, how much of this is like yeah. his sort of paranoia running amok and to what degree he's actually kind of doing these things. Yeah. I think Ben is definitely an unreliable narrator or maybe even just a pathological liar. Yes. He does, even without serial killer stuff, he he does seem a bit sociopathic. He talks literally about never crying. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was what I was going to say. He he doesn't cry, doesn't feel sadness, uh, which is a typical flag to pinpoint i think sociopathy but then again Hamy also doesn't feel like the most reliable narrator as you know you talked about the cat that that may be hidden somewhere but doesn't want to come out and And then you get the well yeah oh yeah the story of the well which she which is again uh, there's a lot of multiple moments which or where she brings up memories that jung su was apparently present for when they were young but that 
Jiang Su doesn't remember, like right. him calling her ugly, him seeing her fall down the well that may or may have not even existed. So yeah, there's a lot of... The, the movie does infuse the story with a lot of ambiguity that inevitably prompts you to question what is real and what is not. I'm usually not the biggest fan of stories that pose that question or to that have that leave you with that question like oh what was real what was fiction right. what was imagined <laughs> yeah, yeah. was it all a dream or was it real like that to me is not the interesting question i think it, uh, i always see it more as a vehicle to to dig behind like the the sort of dynamics that are true regardless of the interpretation right. and i think that's what gets us back to ben being this villainous character i think that's uh, I kind of just wanted to throw that out there as a way to explain how I think it's best to approach these yes, stories. Yes. And it's it's interesting to talk about, like, oh, was he really a serial killer? You know, look at all the little hints. Like, he had the, even quite early on, the first time they were at this apartment, there's this kind of a women's bathroom item box. Yeah, it's like a he makeup. he doesn't seem to have any use for. Makeup box, yeah, like yeah. makeup and stuff, um, which already is suspicious or strange. Um and there's other like hints sprinkled throughout that may suggest that Ben is actually a serial killer and the way that he obviously talks about or or talks to Jung Soo about, like I burned down a greenhouse right. near you, and then Jung Soo is like, I, I checked upon all of them. That's not any one of them. Yeah. How strange, you know? And then he says, like, Oh, what it's very you might <laughs> yeah. be too close to see it. And yeah. And that's of course when Hey Me has already uh disappeared out of his life even though he at that point he i think is not yet aware that she's actually disappeared right so yeah there's little hints like that there's other other hints that he may just be a regular guy or at least a not a serial killer right but yeah i think it's important just as a general note that that it's that you should not or at least that it's if you want to get the most out of a movie like this, then you should not have that be the end point of a discussion, but rather the yes. beginning. Like, right. what do these different metaphorical lanes really reveal as a... Because usually there still is a more unifying story yes. beneath there that's regardless, or that's true regardless of which angle you look at it from. Right, right. Yeah, and I think I, I, I should clarify, I think you're totally right, and I think one of the things that I like about this movie is it doesn't feel like like rewatch the multiple times I've rewatched it. There's more clue, like there's more depth that unfolds, but, but I'm not each time I've watched it. It's not like, Ooh, I'm noticing more clues about the truth and I'm getting to the bottom of the mystery. Yeah. Uh, it's not really that. And there's a lot of ambiguity throughout the film that doesn't really have anything to do with the question of whether or not Ben is, is the serial killer or not too, which I think speaks to this like broader question of the ambiguity of, of life or um, the mystery of life in certain ways. Um, and, you mm -hmm. know, this, this particular question is just kind of like one of those. Jiang uh, Su talks at one point, Ben asks him what kind of story he's writing. And Jung Soo says something like, you know, to me, life is a mystery. This is where I think it's a, a mm. great adaptation of Murakami in a way. Like yeah. this feel, this movie feels a lot more Murakami to me than uh, Drive My Car does in that there's this like 
you already mentioned Kafka on the shore, but in that book, there's this palpable sense of all this ambiguity and mystery, but you also get a really strong sense that you're not, you could read that book like five times and never get to the bottom of what's actually going on there. It's kind of, Mm -hmm. there's kind of this sense of unresolvable question baked into the thing itself. And there's a sort of like poetry to like the way things are happening that that also feels kind of like like i don't yeah i don't it's hard, it's hard to describe but it's much more about getting into that feeling and that experience of how those things come across as you're watching this movie than it is like hmm. answering any of those specific questions i think yeah exactly and i think it also it does a great job at infusing that mystery of life into the mystery of other people in the yes. sense that to Jung Su, both Hei Mi and Ben are to some extent impenetrable. That in the sense that they he doesn't seem to get like a true grasp on both of their characters. And so yeah. maybe that's why he uses fiction as a way or as a means to find some sort of closure or resolve it in some way or another. But yeah, yeah. I think either way, I think whether Hei Mi is killed or not i think in both case, cases she is a kind of tragic lost soul type of character who keeps running into walls with whatever she tries to do to satisfy that i, I guess both her great and her little hunger if, if she's also in a lot of debt and not really having any career or yeah life path in front of her and the same with Ben, you know, we talked about this already, but in, you know, regardless of how you look at him, he still is a kind of a high class objectifying person, maybe slightly sociopathic, but you know, there's in both cases there's at least to Jung Su, there's this is what he can draw from them, but there still is that that essence that's missing to for us to decide which one it is. Is she just is Hamy just gone or is she killed? Is Ben just an arrogant douchebag or is he really that psycho- psychopathic right. serial killer? Yeah. It's easy to miss how hard I think it is to pull that off in a story because usually I think where when ambiguity fails is when multiple interpretations also change the meaning of the story significantly. Right. Right. You can get a sense of these characters, but they're still you. You can never get a full sense of them. And I think yeah. no matter how you look at them, you still get some of the same elements. But at the same time, you never get the full picture. And I think that's part of what this movie is about thematically: about kind of making your way through a world where you have all, where everyone around you is to some extent ambiguous and mysterious and um, out of reach. Right. But um, yeah. Yeah, at the same time, there's, I guess if there's any solace, there's enough there to build some kind of unifying narrative about them or to uh, find closure, at least in your own imagination of uh, that, that that can be used to sort of fill in the gaps. Right. I also want to want to mention the way that this movie in particular is handling kind of class and economic disparity. I think you know, Parasite mm. is a movie that I've talked a lot about on my channel and is for probably most people, you know, the 
South Korean cinema, you know, examination of class that is most well-recognized or popular. But I think this movie hits on a certain kind of nuance in that discussion that I think mm-hmm. even Parasite doesn't doesn't really have. And it's relating the economic disparity like really clearly to Haimi's vulnerability in a lot of ways when Jung Su is trying to track her down. He goes to uh like where she used to work and he talks to this woman and she's kind of like, you know, all these all these women are transient. They're just trying to make a buck where they can. She says this thing about no country for for women. There's this implication that mm-hmm. part of why she's with Ben is because she might need money and he has it. So she's having to rely on wealthier men for money. Then he goes to her family and we find out that the reason she's estranged from her family is because of these credit card debts. And so it's, it's like kind of this whole thing that even allows her to be uh, or the thing that's making her vulnerable in this way and making it so that nobody's really nobody really cares about what happens to her ultimately is because of this economic hardship that she's in. And then that's connected too to Jung Su's mother, who he's been estranged from, whose clothes he's had to burn. She shows up for one scene, sees him for the first time in 16 years, basically to ask for money, essentially. You know, we see, I've already talked about how I think Jung Su, in in a large way, desires to have Ben's sort of status in part that's provided by his wealth. And there's a there's just a very mm-hmm. clear disparity there that's visualized. But one of the things I think this movie does really well, besides just like illustrate that gap and show like the hardship that some of the poorer people are going through and be like, oh, look, this rich guy is a bad guy, you know, nasty, bad person. It's not just doing mm-hmm. that. It's also showing because I think like one of the downsides in our society, in a lot of societies that have a lot of economics disparity like this like south korea or america is not just that oh look these you know poor people are worse off and have all these things that they have to deal with because of that that's a that's an unfortunate negative downside but these situations also tend to create this massive overemphasis where your singular focus in life can often become just like getting out of that place or achieving uh and wanting more and more and having all this stuff like the wealth itself becomes objectified in a way that can kind of like create this um like Jung Soo to me is is a character that really embodies this sense of like he's not like the good guy to Ben's sociopathic rich guy he's kind of like the flip yeah. he's the flip side of a a negative coin both of which are in part created by like the economic disparity of their situation you have ben's complete disillusionment with life and boredom that is created by having anything and everything that he could ever want uh except for you know apparently a woman who who trusts in him because that's the only thing that makes him jealous he says but then you yeah, have yeah. like jung Su on the other side of that who is just consumed entirely by his desire to have those things uh, to have what he doesn't have, and that r- rules his life. They both create disconnection. They both keep those characters from truly connecting with Hey Me. Like all three characters yeah. are disconnected because of these things. 
I don't know. Yeah, I think just like the way it unfolds, all of that, I think has a lot yeah. of nuance beyond just saying like, look, rich guy, bad, you know, poor guy is bad off because we don't, they don't have money or something like that. Yeah. I think that also adds an interesting weight to the different interpretations, because whereas if you go with Ben as the serial killer, then you can see sort of Hamy being victimized by him or being uprooted from her life because of Ben. But if you then look at that negative or the other side of that negative coin where she is just uh, where Ben is not a serial killer, but then it may have been Jung Su who was, you know, because he was so cruel to her. And even though she wa or he was the only person that she trusted that right. in that interpretation, it's he who ends up being the deciding factor in why she disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Then you yeah. have to, if you're in both cases, Hamy disappears, but in no matter, like if you look at the different angles of those or the different sides of that negative coin, there's different people to blame or different factors to blame, right. I guess. Right. Um, not saying that, Hey, me is just the uh, sort of reactionary figure who's just tossed around by the men in her life, but it does. I think if you take her as a character who is lost and in search for meaning and she's in debt, so she doesn't have anywhere else to go, no ties to this world. And then you can kind of see, uh, how either, you know, someone who objectifies her like Ben does and then treats her like crap kind of pushes her over the edge. But at the same time, if she, if she does meet the, the guy or, or put her trust in the guy she sees as the nice guy, and then he treats, ends up treating her as also in a, the kind of that nice guy objectifying way yeah. where he did the idealization and at the same time the restricting of freedom and that kind of shaming of her womanhood, I guess. Then you can see that in that case, it's he who would also, who would also, uh, kind of push her over that hedge, but, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of the things that occurred to me this watch that I hadn't really thought about before, uh, is that I think there might be some kind of insinuate, there's some kind of division between the characters in terms of how it relates to this little hunger, big hunger dynamic. Hamey talks about mm -hmm. how the little hunger in the dance starts out down here and then the hands go upward and it turns into big hunger. And mm. I was just thinking about that in relation to Jung Su and Hamey and how they both as characters in the story are encountering something much closer to little hunger. And they both have this search for meaning. Jung Su is treating life or life is appearing to him as kind of this mystery that he's unable to solve. And Hamey is also desperately trying to find this kind of meaning. And then on the flip side of that, you have Ben, who does not have little hunger and also seems not really to have big hunger. He is not searching for meaning because to him, life has become meaningless. And, you know, he seems to exist in a, in a state of a sort of total, uh, you know, like nihilism where he says there is no right and wrong there, mm -hmm. you know, he treats everything as, as kind of a plaything um, with no meaning. Uh, so I think, you know, there's some kind of, I don't know if that's true about life. Like if, mm -hmm. if little hunger yeah. actually does beget big hunger, I think you probably can get big hunger even with your, with your stomach full of food. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think, I think there's, there's something there that 
is trying to be reflected in the story potentially that I think is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a, a movie that's very dense with information, meaning all the stuff that makes it really worth to rewatch it. Yeah. Um, I was just curious, might be an interesting thing to end the episode on is what other movie would you recommend to people who watched Burning and enjoyed it and are now looking for something similar or something that deals with similar themes? Like what's the best movie to watch yeah. after this one? Okay, good question. Um, and I, I have some recommendations uh, and mm -hmm. this might go in a direction that people aren't expecting. But one of the things okay. I really love about Burning is that I think to me, it, it captures a lot of the elements of noir and neo-noir films that I really love. A lot of classic, I really love, especially neo-noirs, and these this sense of mystery, this sense of someone trying to solve a mystery who's not really that equipped to solve it or is kind of, um, you know, you think about characters like the, like the dude in The Big Lebowski where they're just kind of like bumbling around and sort of, you know, mm -hmm. accidentally solving this mystery, you know, it's like Zhang Su kind of takes on that persona in in the second half of this film. So the movies that I really think about in relationship to this one are actually maybe Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, which is also a movie for me that okay. if you yeah. if you rewatch it a couple times, there's like depth there and there's mystery that doesn't like it, it in the, some of the other detective mysteries the mystery actually gets solved but there's still this pervasive sense of like not exactly knowing what's going on and what's more important in the story is not necessarily the mystery that's being solved it's more about the dynamic between the characters as you're on the path to solve that mystery so i'd recommend that one and then mm. um, also the long goodbye is a movie that i really love that has some kind of similarities to this where it's it's a oh yeah uh a detective it's it's Marlowe played by Elliot Gold and a great movie maybe this is one we could talk about sometime because I love it mm -hmm. um and he's he's dealing with this the fact that his a close friend of his is suspected of murdering his girlfriend or wife I forget who it is and so he's kind mm -hmm. of trying to solve this case but it has this very personal element attached to it so those would be my recommendations they maybe don't hit the same like themes exactly yeah but they have the same quality of sort of like mystery and ambiguity and having to make a choice about what to do based on incomplete information or that kind of thing hmm yeah interesting interesting choice and unexpected one <laughs> i think mine now feels much more on the nose but well that's good it'll it'll balance it out the one that i was thinking of was uh last year's decision to leave oh yes which is also on uh movie right now yes that also felt like let me put it like this like after watching burning burning i immediately wanted to rewatch decision to leave because i felt like i still haven't uh, gone back to that movie for a second right. viewing but i felt like that was also a movie that was so dense with little details and nuances that make a second viewing so rewarding yeah you know i think that's probably then in a movie that feels very similar in vibe as well a kind of neo-noir-ish romance-driven thriller set in korea south korea that also deals with similar themes of 
people being driven by emotions that they do not fully understand themselves yes. and people trying to connect with people that they cannot fully get a grasp of. Um, and yeah, just a very similar and fantastic atmosphere yep. that I think is present in both of those movies. Good recommendation. Well, thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the show and want to help us keep it going, be sure to follow us on our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula. Cinema of Meaning is a Nebula original show, meaning that here you can experience our podcast ad-free, listen to all of our episodes a week early, and get instant access to all of our monthly bonus episodes. Last month, we talked about the quest for meaning, masculinity, and heroic leaders in David Fincher's Fight Club, But before that, we've also covered Babylon, Avatar The Way of Water, the new All Quiet on the Western Front, Drive, and many others. So you're really getting a whole new catalogue of episodes. You can sign up directly at our Nebula page, that's nebula.tv slash cinemaofmeaning, or just follow the link in the show notes. And we'll see you again next time.